my landlord came to visit the other day. You didn't tell me he was coming, but that's normal. He likes to hang around outside the front of the flat, which I've taken to double locking to stop him from just barging in, until he sees me coming home from the shops or whatever, at which point he'll act like he was just walking in the other direction. James, he'll exclaim, smiling broadly and reaching out for a handshake. Good to see you. I was just popping by to take a look at the boiler or the fridge or the black mould growing in the weird nook in the hallway. It's always something with him, some reasonable request I find difficult to refuse. He just wants to come in and poke around, really. His favourite thing is to give me cleaning tips, to tell me I'm not using enough bleach on the shower or to scrub the black mould harder presumably so he can deduct the cost of repainting from my damage deposit. This time around, it was to drop off a disposable plastic dehumidifier he found online. Now, I know it's pointless. The mould grows because the pipes upstairs are leaking and the pointing around the windows is shot, but he's far too cheap to address the actual problems. My flat is one of three he owns in the area. He lives a couple of streets over, in a pleasant, semi-detached Victorian terrace, the sort of unassuming spot which he probably picked up for a few thousand quid in the late 80s, and which is now worth seven figures. My rent pays his pension, and lets him drive a Range Rover and go on a holiday four times a year. When I let him in, he likes to hang around for as long as possible, telling me all about the smart business decisions he made which led to him owning four properties and living off my hard work. When the bombs fall, he'll die just like the rest of them. I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. still struggling with despair, which is why I tell you about my landlord. One of the intentional side effects of the 80s and 90s was a intensifying stratification designed to break down solidarity. Your dad's friend is now a minor landlord, your uncle is a cop, your cousin works as a slash and burn consultant implementing layoffs in the NHS. The moral rot at the heart of capitalism has been spread evenly across the layers of society. So those at the top are richer than ever, but those in the middle now identify with them more than with those beneath them on the ladder. There's one factor which unites all of us, though. Disaster. The looming threat of nuclear war may have subsided since the USSR got sold off to the highest bidder, but capitalism never lets a good crisis disappear entirely. Think of the way triggering a nuclear holocaust was used as a wedge issue against Corbyn. Somehow, the equation of strength with a willingness to senselessly murder millions of civilians is a cornerstone of Western propaganda efforts against basic human dignity. Our nuclear infrastructure remains in place then, out of spite rather than need. The 
The UK's current stockpile of usable warheads is at around 120, with a further 95 in reserves. A conservative estimate puts this at around 12 megatons of potential destructive power. Enough that, if detonated all at once at St Paul's Cathedral, it would kill everyone between Walthamstow and Wimbledon. The heavy blast damage area would cover around 35 square miles, destroying even the sturdiest buildings and wiping out all life in the city. That's about 7 million people dead, not including those who die later from the uh, radiation cloud sweeping across Europe. But sure, let's go on question time and demand any serious leader be willing to kill that many people. How can you truly trust someone to lead the country if they aren't willing to slaughter millions and make an entire region unlivable for thousands of years? One of my favourite documents online, one I go back to regularly, is the 1993 Sandia report on the design for the proposed waste isolation pilot plant in New Mexico. This plant was to be a long-term storage facility for nuclear waste, designed to hold it until it's no longer dangerous to humans. This process may take tens of thousands of years which means we'll need a place to store it which will last a similarly long time and which will, more importantly, clearly communicate to future generations of humans that it is unsafe to be around. The Waste Isolation Pilot Plant Report lays out some ideas for how this could be achieved. It's a fascinating document, filled with illustrations with names like Menacing Earthworks and Landscape of Thorns, all in service of the ultimate form of architecture as persistent message. The challenge with designing a sculpture like this, you see, is one of language. Think of how significantly the way we communicate has changed in the past hundred years, let alone the past thousand. The report identified the following as the key message to be communicated by the architecture of this forsaken site. This place is a message and part of a series of messages. Pay attention to it. Sending this message was important to us. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture. This place is not a place of honor. No highly esteemed deed is commemorated here. Nothing valued is here. What is here was dangerous and repulsive to us. This message is a warning about danger. The danger is in a particular location. It increases towards the center. The center of danger is here, of a particular size and shape, and below us. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. The danger is to the body and it can kill. The form of the danger is an emanation of energy. The danger is unleashed only if you substantially disturb this place physically. This place is best shunned and left uninhabited.
I imagine how the city would look after a nuclear war, and the parallels are stark. Jutting, dangerous markers and scorched concrete, devoid of life, any remaining food and water cursed for generations, all leaning tower blocks and broken glass. Maybe we designed it like that on purpose. If London was the epicentre of a nuclear strike, it wouldn't leave a crater but a tangled mass of inhospitable death, warning us away. Humans love to survive in the cracks, though, to return to places of dishonour, warnings be damned. I watched a video the other day of a guy illegally trekking across the Chernobyl exclusion zone, setting up camp in the abandoned buildings and spending the night soaking up radiation in exchange for YouTube ad revenue. It's easy to write him off as an idiot, which... To be clear, he most certainly is. But I think there's something sort of beautiful to humanity's refusal to bend to any basic survival instinct. Our here-for-a-good-time-not-for-a-long-time ridiculousness in the face of insurmountable odds and unavoidable warnings. If we created the landscape of thorns to warn people off a nuclear waste dump, I guarantee people would be holidaying there within six months, filming themselves digging holes to try to get close to the radioactivity, burying things in the night to see what effect radiation has on them. Humans are natural experimenters, and the more foreboding a place looks, the more likely we are to throw ourselves at it. We're kind of dipshits, basically. I've talked in previous episodes about how the rich intend to survive the end times, but what about the rest of us? I've been thinking about the word apocalypse a lot recently, in the mystical sense of the word. The apocalypse refers to a great unveiling of truths, a time of revelation and radical change, the end of one world in order that a new world can take its place. It's like the death card in the tarot. Rather than representing the literal concept of dying, it's more about a time of transformation, the old being cleared to make way for the new. It's a part of life. Around 2010, when pop culture was really leaning hard into zombie fiction, a common topic of conversation was how you'd survive the zombie apocalypse, what your plan would be. At the time, mine was to go to a nearby Costco, barricade the doors and live on the roof. It seemed like a sensible way to get all the supplies you'd need and fortify against invasion. Plus there are pre-built screening areas for quarantining survivors, and so on and so forth. Nowadays though, I've come to the realisation that there's almost no chance someone like me would survive any apocalypse, zombie, nuclear, or otherwise. And why would I want to? The beginning exists in the end, all tied together, a thread of change which I hope would strangle me, recreate me anew. I'm not an accelerationist. I don't seek the end. I'm not trying to speed it up. But when it happens, you won't find me underground in a bunker, holding on to remnants of a brutal past which created the apocalyptic present. When the end comes, I plan to go outside and let the new day swallow me up like sand into an oyster's mouth. My greatest fear, the blanket of despair which carries me to restless sleep each night, 
is that the end never comes. That this, ceaseless, grasping this, is all there is. Young children tend to have repeated dreams of flying, and for some of us, they recur into adulthood. There's a strong connection in our minds between the feeling of weightlessness and childhood homes, which, as far as I can tell, bears little relation to the relative happiness or trauma of your upbringing. The pattern of these dreams tends to be similar. They normally involve standing at the top of a staircase you associate strongly with a period of your life somewhere between four and eight years old, concentrating really hard, and then effortlessly taking off and swooping down to the bottom. These dreams are so common that it's actually considered a distinct developmental phase by some child psychologists. We tend to start having them at around eight or nine years old, and they're often tinged with nostalgia, even though to be nostalgic at such a young age feels a a little absurd. When I started dreaming about flying, It was always centred around the house my parents moved out of when I was five, and I'd always wake up feeling that sort of refreshing lightness you get in your chest after a really good cry. It was emotionally draining, but also freeing, like I was practising for some great emotional turmoil, and it was giving me a quick trial run of how I'd feel afterwards. How does this relate to nuclear annihilation? Well, we have to go back in history to a similarly precarious moment, back when another existential threat to humanity was stalking the Earth. At the start of the second plague pandemic, which rocked Europe, Asia and the Middle East for over four centuries, from 1348 through to around 1881, a myth grew among the most blighted populations. Somewhere between 75 and 200 million people died between 1347 and 1351. That's about 30 to 60% of Europe's population at the time. So it's no surprise that stories began to spring up to explain the incomprehensible disaster they were witnessing in real time. In this period, whole cities were locked down into containment sometimes for months or even years, to allow the plague to run its course. Lacking a proper understanding of how plague travels and spreads, these lockdowns were imbued with spiritual significance. Local religious figures would declare the disease a punishment from God, only solvable by the collective supplicants of the population in large, open-air religious ceremonies, which were, obviously, major sites of transmission worsening the situation overall. 
children were often excused from these religious ceremonies, simply for being too rowdy to control, and would therefore sometimes, ironically, be spared from catching the plague. This led to a a lot of orphans roaming the streets after their parents passed, aimlessly eking out an existence in a world where all normal rules were suspended. These children would often form small gangs, and that's where the flying dreams come in. Freed of all social norms, uprooted from society, and without the constraints of pre-existing ideologies, these child gangs acted as a revolutionary force in the cities they operated within, enacting radical wealth redistribution by killing local nobles and wealthy families and ransacking their houses. The plague had disproportionately impacted the poor, since the rich already avoided contact with the unwashed masses, so these child gangs who operated outside of the law took on a mythical, otherworldly property. The myth that followed the plague was passed among wealthy houses. This plague is a punishment from God, a great cleansing of sinners, a spectre haunting Europe, and the children who survive are his messengers. He gifts them the power of flight, that they might be able to scale the buildings of the wealthy, and grants them immunity from the plague, in exchange for enacting his vengeance upon the powerful. They believed that if they did not make sufficient sacrifices to ensure the safety of their cities, these child gangs would swoop into their rooms at night on God's holy wings, and all the wealth in the world would be for naught in the face of his judgment. Perhaps this was just an urban myth born of tumultuous times, but I keep going back to the feeling of lightness and relief I'd have after a flying dream when I was a child. Were we being prepared for something? I had a dream last night. I was standing on the high walk which crosses Upper Thames Street, the one with the wooden slats along the side, where you can run your hand along them as you climb the stairs, to feel a little grounded as you ascend above the dual carriageway, and I was gazing east. The view from there isn't the most inspiring in London, but you can just about see the spire of St Magnus the Martyr poking up above Fishmonger's Hall. The streets and roads were full of people, just like me, stuck in place, staring at the sky, and I knew something terrible was happening. I felt awful, sick, sweaty, but I couldn't move. My feet planted to the bridge as I stared along the glass and steel corridor of finance houses and banks which winds down towards Traitor's Gate. The people I saw were exactly the people who'll be lost in the city come the end. The shop workers, the cleaners, gardeners, nurses, the homeless, the vagrants, the people whose blood makes the city run as the powerful leave us behind. Looking up, I saw missiles dotting the sky like rain 
blotting out the sun as they fell. British nukes, hundreds of them, now somehow mistargeted, or perhaps fired intentionally. The great cleansing come at last. Time slowed, and I watched them arc gently downwards, poised for impact. As the warheads lilted towards the city streets, in the final moments before the end, I felt the soles of my feet rise from the pavement, and a great feeling of peace and power washed over me. At one second to midnight, I knew, somehow, this was our moment, and I took flight. Then I woke up. episode of Subterraneans, Reinterment, Isolation, and The Drowned. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subtopod on Twitter, or by email through subtopod at gmail.com. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app, since it really helps getting my name out there. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 per month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran and Alex, who are keeping me company underground. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>